0: This is the Ion Travel podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com/iontravel and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel podcast. Do you remember your first class trip? In my case, it wasn't an unusual one. In fact, many kids in the New York City school system did their first class trip to Washington, D.C. And in my case, it was memorable, overwhelming, and in the long term, meaningful. And Washington, D.C. remains one of our most popular destinations today. I'll speak with the mayor of Washington, Muriel Bowser, on how the nation's capital is reopening to visitors, with some secret D.C. suggestions as well. Let me introduce our our next guest, and I I do that by referring to my very first adventure trip Uh, growing up in New York when I was in the seventh grade. My my junior high school uh, social studies teacher, Mr. Greenhut, took us on a bus, and about five hours later, I was looking at the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the Washington Monument, and so many others. My very first trip... Was an indelible impression, and it made me want to go back again and again and again to our nation's capital. And my memories of that trip are just as vivid today. We went on a tour of the FBI building. They took us up to the lab. I watched an agent actually fire a gun, and they talked about the 10 most wanted list. By the way, I think they still had the 10 most wanted list, but it's probably about 500 people. Uh, Then, of course, to all the monuments. And and my favorite in those days, the old Smithsonian Museum. But in subsequent trips, of course, what was really the difference? Coming back to the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. That was an indelible impression. Uh, and the coolest thing of all, the museums were free then, and they're still free now. Just what a great memory that I get to relive every single time I go back to our nation's capital. And so I'm very pleased to welcome to Ion Travel, the honorable Mayor of washington d c. Murro Bowser, Madam Mayor. Welcome.
2: Well, thank you so much, Peter, for having me, and what a great story uh, of your of your twelve year old remembrance of washington d c.
0: Well, I have to tell you, i I know so many of my friends all around the country who will tell me their very first trip was the class trip to Washington. And uh, you know, and it still happens today, doesn't it?
2: It absolutely does. We, we see many kids from all over come during spring break, um, cherry blossom season um, usually, and really enjoy their nation's capital. We can't wait to get them back. In fact, we hope some families will, will choose to come. Especially um, from close by areas during the summer.
0: Now I know you're a two term mayor, and uh, you you've won with overwhelming popularity. But what many people may not know, but I know, is at one point in your life, you were a tour guide in Washington D.C.
2: I was one of my summer jobs as a kid in high school um, was giving tours on the tour mobile. <laughs>
0: Explain that.
2: <laughs> well, there used to be these open trams. There was an um, operator that had an exclusive right to operate on the mall. And it was, you know, it was just a great time uh, as as a kid to, to just be on a bus in the summer, talking to people from all over the country and all over the world. I gave the mall tour, and I also gave the Arlington National Cemetery
0: tour. Ooh. Now did you have a script or were you were you kind of sort of like freelancing it
2: well there there is a kind of a a book basically a binder as I'm surrounded by binders on my desk <laughs> uh, and oh as you become uh more uh seasoned uh, in giving the tours then uh, you you add information that that's important to you and that you you see that people react to.
0: well since you talked about the mall and Arlington. Tell us something we don't know about the mall. Ooh.
2: Um, well, I don't, when people think about the mall, Freak, uh, you you do travel and you know about all of the museums, but uh, many Americans don't know that's, um, you know, that's America's front lawn uh, there. Uh, and so the mall itself uh, is a grassy area that has had uh, a salon um, and people uh, treat it uh, for sports and picnics and exercise, uh, we use it for movies and wonderful art installations. Um, so the mall is really a, a, a national a national treasure.
0: And I remember uh, not from my first trip to Washington. I'm dating myself when I tell you this because it happened after. But the indelible image in my mind of Arlington was, of course, in November of 1963 watching on our black-and-white television set uh, the burial of uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy at Arlington? Uh,
2: Of course. Um, And it is still, I think, one of the the greatest attractions uh, in this region um, for people to go uh, and see the Eternal Flame and uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers there. And uh, still many volunteers go uh, to uh, honor our fallen heroes uh, there uh, every Memorial Day and Veterans Day. They're typically tributes, uh, but it is a short distance uh, from the Lincoln Memorial across one of our iconic bridges. And uh, if, I, if you haven't, for people who haven't taken that tour, it's definitely a tour you want to take.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Now, I know the mayor's not supposed to have favorites, but you were a tour guide. So if I had never come to Washington and you were my tour guide today, what's the one thing you're going to tell me I cannot miss?
2: Well, I'm going to tell you something you may not, um, it may not come to you. And it wasn't on my tour, um, but it is Rock Creek Park. Uh, in it is one of our one, part of our national parks system. Uh, and frequently people think of D.C. as just being uh, the White House and the Capitol and all the Smithsonian's and the National Mall. But in fact, uh, we have beautiful neighborhoods in Washington. Uh, and what people tell me frequently when they come here, uh, especially international guests, you know, we have had over 20 million Um, visitors internationally, and we can't wait for them all to come back to D.C., they're always um, surprised by how green and pretty D.C. is, Um, and they don't always know why, Um, but part of the reason is uh, we don't have any buildings in D.C. taller than the Capitol Dome uh, with the statue of Freedom on top, Um, so you can actually see the sun, Uh, and we have beautiful trees. (laughs) Uh, And we have wonderfully wide uh, avenues. And so the city is just really uh, quite green uh, and lovely.
0: And we can actually thank the French for that, can't we?
2: We, Well, we can. Uh, And then when you go to Paris, you you can feel the similarities between how D.C. is laid out um, and how Paris is laid out.
0: And speaking of how D.C. is laid out. D.C., if you take a look at the district as a whole, is 68 square miles, 705,000 people. You have a bigger population than a number of U.S. states, and yet, a a subject I got to talk to you about, you're not a state. Uh, And and what's so weird about at least trying to figure out what the mayor of Washington does, because you're not a state, but you might as well be the governor, you might as well be the county executive, and the mayor all rolled into one, right? Because you uh you run medicaid you issue drivers licenses and by the way your license plate says what on the back of it
2: it says in taxation without representation um exactly. so what being a state um what not being a state means peter is that we are singular in free democracies in not allowing the residents of our capital to be represented in the legislature that is in the capital.
0: Uh, last year, I had uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton on the show. We talked about this subject, uh, but in the in the year since, uh, the idea of DC statehood is at least beginning to pick up some traction, isn't it?
2: It absolutely is. Um, in fact, I would say we're the closest we've ever been um, to actually righting the wrong of our democracy and not allowing residents of the Capitol to vote in the national legislature.
0: So here's my silly question. What arguments could possibly be launched that are rational against statehood?
2: Well, there are no rational arguments anymore because we've debunked them all. Um, They said we're too small, yet we're bigger um, than two states. They said we can't take care of ourselves, yet we're a donor state. We give more to the federal government than we get back we have all the responsibilities of citizenship we pay our taxes we go to wars um, yet we don't have two senators um, and the only way to write that wrong uh, is is through statehood uh, it is true that there are a lot of partisan concerns about it, but you don't, our constitution doesn't set out determining how people will vote uh, to determine if they have a right to statehood. Um, The Congress of the United States uh, has in its uh, sole authority, the ability to admit states. In fact, they have admitted all the states in the union um, through simple legislation outside of the first 13 columns.
0: Wow. And yet, by my count, what, 22 state Republican attorneys general have sent letters arguing in their minds that D.C. statehood is unconstitutional. How could that be?
2: Uh, well, uh, they, they they have a, a view, uh, certainly, and we know that it's a political view, not a legal one. Uh, legal scholars uh, have made clear Including Jamie Raskin, who is a preeminent constitutional lawyer and member of Congress uh, representing Maryland, uh, and others uh, who have worked for Republican presidents, uh, that the Congress has in its sole authority the power to admit states, including on uh, D.C. This notion that the Constitution requires um, a federal district is true, uh, but our legislation, H.R. 51, uh, makes clear that there. Will be a federal district. Uh, it will include the Capitol. It will include the White House, the National Mall, all the free museums, and everything that everyone comes to DC to visit will continue to be the federal district. Um, the balance of the city, the rest of the 68 square miles where we all live, um, will become. Um, the 51st state. What I want to make clear to all of your listeners, Peter, all around the country is nothing changes for them. Um, They're still going to have their nation's capital to visit. They will be able to call on their senators and representatives at the Capitol. They will be able to go to the Easter egg roll at the white house. All the museums are going to continue to be free. Uh, All of none, none of that changes. What changes, which they all should be interested in is that our democracy becomes more perfect because everyone who pays taxes uh, will be included.
0: And I'm assuming that also applies to Puerto Rico.
2: I personally, I'm not Puerto Rican uh, and I wasn't elected to represent their views, so I can't speak for them. But I can speak for the people of the District of Columbia who voted 86 percent of them um, to be admitted as the 51st state. Now, I understand that Puerto Rican statehood is being considered. I, quite frankly, uh, see the benefits of Puerto Rican statehood for Puerto Ricans. uh, And if that is what they choose, uh, they will have my full support.
0: And of course, you said two of the most magic words in answering this question. So I'm going to repeat them to you about Washington, D.C. Free museums.
2: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, It's a wonderful thing, the Smithsonian. I think our destination D.C. uh, director, uh, he gave me the number of hours it would take for a person uh, to walk through all of our free museums. Um, And you simply can't do it in one visit. That's why we encourage people not just to come for the weekend, but to stay a while. um, So they can get through all the museums uh, in Washington, D.C., but then also get out to our neighborhoods, get out to our restaurants. Um, We have have worked long and hard on dispelling this notion that D.C. is just a government town. The fact is uh, we have wonderful nightlife, wonderful cultural scene, uh, and they all of these folks are waiting for our visitors um, to come back.
0: Exactly. And you have memorials that people don't even know about. You, some of them are actually hidden like the Einstein Memorial.
2: Yes, we do have a, uh, you're talking about in front of the National Academy of Sciences. Exactly. Yes, that is a wonderful one, and it is an incredible sculpture. Uh, We have other wonderful parks, um, and we count ourselves lucky to have a lot of little um, triangle parks um, that have monuments and museums on them. Um, Did you hear about the Exorcist Steps in Georgetown?
0: (laughs) No. (laughs) Well,
2: you you have to go. Look it up.
0: My thanks to Mayor Bowser. In the midst of all the pandemic madness, not all the research and development has been focused on vaccines. How about the concept of a flying taxi? Think that's just a fantasy? You might want to think again. Simon Wright from The Economist in London has been following this developing story and tells me about how the real flying taxis are about to become real. In the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of economic debacle in the midst of unemployment being at an all-time high, in the midst of the travel industry starting to inch back. What a cool idea that came out of nowhere, the idea that flying taxis may be about to take off. And joining me now, the man who covered that story from The Economist, Simon Wright. Hey, Simon. Hello. Let's talk about this, because, you know, we've been listening about the idea of the supersonic flights coming back. We've been listening to the idea that the technology is there, although if you dig down deeper, you find out that, uh, you know, we may not see the supersonic planes for the next three or four years. We've talked about going into space, uh, and then we find that it's not really space, it's really suborbital. But the idea of a flying taxi, I mean, goes back to my days watching the Jetsons. So talk to me about that, Simon.
3: Well absolutely. I mean you say it's come out of nowhere, but look, the Jetsons sort of set the model, but in fact, the origins go back to 1917, almost as almost as long as as flight itself with the Curtis autoplane, which was a kind of awkward-looking contraption with detachable wings that could turn into a car. I mean, but it barely left the ground. In sort of subsequent decades, we've seen other machines that made it into the skies, but nothing really took off commercially. But as you say in the last year and in the last few months, money has been pouring into the idea of flying taxis. And, you know, in a couple of years, these things are going to be taking off and carrying paying customers. So I know that the idea that something can go in the air and fly
0: is not new to any of us. We do it all the time. But I guess it, it raises all sorts of other issues of liability, of air traffic control, of limits on altitude or space between flights, of where they can actually land, uh, how fast they're going to land. We're not talking helicopters, right?
3: No, well, I think that's exactly right. One of the things that is sort of the reason this is happening now, one of the reasons is because there is finally a pathway to certification, regulators looking at these things and saying, yes, they're okay. And the other reasons are, look, the technology has now been matured, so they're Lightweight. We have batteries that have enough power because these are going to be powered by by batteries for the for the most part. There'll be vertical takeoff and landing, so you don't need much sort of infrastructure, and you know they're, they're, they're so they're, they're ready to go. That's why that's why we're seeing all this excitement now.
0: All right. So I know vertical takeoff and landing, but but humor me a little bit, Simon. Where do you land one of these
3: things? Well, you don't really need much infrastructure. You just need a sort of a patch of concrete, really, and not a not a very big one. I mean, you might need a ticket booth and uh, you'll need to have sort of charging infrastructure uh, at some of these landing places. But as I say, you don't need much with a helicopter, which is the other way of sort of getting around with vertical takeoff in cities. They're very, very noisy. They need big areas to, to take off. Um, and so they're really not allowed to operate, uh, you know, as ubiquitously as flying taxis will, because the other thing about flying taxis, these flying taxis, Powered by batteries is they're going to be very very quiet as well so they won't sort of annoy everybody
2: graduation is a sweet occasion but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle mms.com has a solution personalized m&ms just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors name and even their photo printed right on some m&ms It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order.
0: Okay, so now I have to ask two questions. One, will they be pilotless or will they be operated like a flying Uber?
3: Well, that's a good question. Talking to people in the industry, they say that eventually, like Uber, they want to remove the driver because that's the thing that's going to, you know, take a big chunk of costs out. But I think what they want to do is they want to get the people and regulators used to the idea of uh, flying taxis before they go to flying robo-taxis and remove the pilot. And I think that's probably a good idea.
0: I get it. And then, of course there's some liability issues i'm no, and, and the competitive issues i i noticed the other day that united airlines may be interested in investing in this as
3: well well i look i mean let's look at the investments of, of recently not only have aerospace companies car companies tech firms tech investment funds all kinds of people been putting money in recently we've seen um, a variety of uh, reverse mergers through, I'm sure you've heard of the special purpose acquisition companies, the shell companies that offer up oh, yeah. all cuts to public listing. We saw um, Joby uh, uh, listing in February, which uh, uh, planned to list, it, the Saints plan to list it in February, with a valuation of 6.6 6 billion, Archer uh, 3.8 billion, and more recently, Lillian, the German company, those other two are American. Uh, via reverse merger at 3.3 billion so we're seeing all this money flowing into the industry there are 300 firms apparently working on these sort of craft that can take off and land vertically so it's also also building up united have uh, placed an order um with archer for a a, 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 quite a big order for these flying taxis when they turn up it's not clear what they're going to use them for i mean in one sense you know Getting to an airport is a, is a great way of going. Joby say that the initial cost of uh, of there will be four dollars per person per mile, but that could soon fall as we get economies of scale coming in. So a a trip from sort of downtown Manhattan to JFK would then cost thirty to forty dollars per passenger with sort of four people sharing. So you know the the cost structure seems to be there if they can do that. Lilium has slightly longer range vehicles in mind, which could indeed compete with sort of rail services or, you know, longer taxi journeys. So what we're seeing here is another aspect of urban mobility, as, 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 as it's called these days, which is getting from A to B another way of doing that which can which can you know sort of be integrated into a larger urban mobility ecosystem so i think it's sort of very very exciting if all these companies can um, make good on their promises we've got an entirely new way of getting around and one which you know we can do pretty quickly without getting stuck in traffic, and a sort of a reasonable cost. Simon, I get the idea
0: that the cost will ultimately come down. It'll go from $4 a mile per passenger probably down. I get that because the economy is scale. I understand the idea that you can park these just about anywhere. I guess the next question is, you have to have to train new pilots, and you're going to have to train uh, people in local knowledge because Far be it from me to be to be uh, at least asking the question about power lines and uh, and congestion. I love the idea of flying above the traffic and it goes back to the days of the original pilots uh, when they said IFR and now we know IFR today means instrument flying rules. Those days, they said IFR meant I follow the railroad, <laughs> right? They, so I guess will there be different skyways then, uh, and, and 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 approved avenues?
3: Well, I think this all has to be sort of thrashed out. At the, um, but I think I think you're right. There would be that sort of thing. But you know, technology I think is going to save us here. The, the idea of geofencing not only sort of keeps uh, these flying taxis away from things like power lines, but it keeps them away from each other as well. It's, um, it's a, and it's not the most sophisticated of technologies. It's the kind of thing that's used with drones these days to keep them away from sort of critical infrastructure and things like that. But you're, you're, you're right. These, these things still have to be uh, completely na- nailed down, I think.
0: What would you say is the biggest
3: challenge that's that's confronting the flying taxi operators? I, it may be public acceptance. I mean, uh, certainly when there's a pilot in the pilot seat, that, that should be fine. But as I sort of mentioned earlier... Once you take the pilot out, will people be prepared to get into a, 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 a driverless flying taxi? One of the drawbacks of the uh, of autonomous cars, driverless cars, seems to be that there's sort of people are slightly nervous about getting into a car without a driver. So maybe they're even more nervous in getting into a flying vehicle without a driver. You think? Even though, <laughs> you know, even though these driverless vehicles it's probably sort of the, the easier to to manage that technology because, you know, up in the air, there's much less to sort of crash into than there is down on the ground. It's a much, much harder job to make a driverless car than it is probably to make a, a driverless uh, roadway taxi for the skies.
0: Well, let me, let me be devil's advocate. You're right. There's a lot less stuff to crash into in the sky, but then you only have to crash once. <laughs> so I guess the question then becomes, uh, what do they build in in terms of safeguards? For example, there's a, there's a single-engine plane today on the market called the Cirrus, which a lot of people love flying. And one of the reasons why they love flying it, it's the only plane sold commercially as a private aircraft that has its own built-in parachute in the body of the plane so that if you lose the engine, you pull the handle and you glide down. Um, what happens with all of a sudden you, you lose battery on the flying taxi? They don't glide
3: very well. Well, that's a very good point. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but what I would say is you make sure you keep your batteries properly charged. <laughs> have, have, have several uh, motors, and um, so, you know, if one goes out, there'll be plenty more to keep keep you in the sky. And remember, remember Simon Wright said that. I'm quoting you.
0: <laughs> My thanks to Simon. This summer promises to be a boom in the great American road trip as we all begin to rediscover our own country. Joe Yogurst is the author of National Geographic's 100 Parks, 5,000 Ideas. And he talks to me about where we're going this summer, and perhaps most important, where we're not going this summer, but maybe should. Just about every airline is out there flooding the zone right now, uh, banking on the idea that America's gonna start traveling again within the United States. And when you take a look at the individual destinations they've announced as so-called new routes, what a surprise. It's Acadia. It's uh, Bozeman, Montana. It's, It's every destination you can imagine next to a national or a state park. And the airlines are banking on the fact that we're all going. Well, somebody knows a little bit about that is my next guest. He's the author of National Geographic's 100 Parks and 5,000 Ideas. Where to go, I love this one, when to go, what to see and what to do. Joe Yogerst, how are you, sir?
1: I'm great today.
0: How are you, Peter? I'm good. Well, here's a, here's not exactly a news bulletin. Everybody's going. Um, I mean, if you take a look at the numbers, I mean, already the campgrounds are getting crowded. The reservations are going through the roof. You can't find an RV. Um, you can't find a rental car in the United States. Uh, and everybody seems to think that uh, you know, the national parks are going to be their savior. And I understand why. And of course, you understand why you wrote the book. But the question I've got to ask is, let's, let's be a little contrarian here and creative. Tell me where we really should go if we're going to try to have a great experience and avoid the crazy crowds.
1: Well, there's still a lot of parks that people don't know about or that fly under the radar. Like the last park I was in, which was Big Bend in uh, West Texas. I was there in late January. And even though they experienced what they consider a surge of visitors, it's nothing compared to a lot of other parks. And um, I did some canoe camping there on the Rio Grande with uh, one of my daughters and a guide. And we were the only three people camped along the river that entire night um, for about an 80-mile stretch of Big Bend National Park. So there are still places you can go in national parks in the lower 48 states
0: where you can get away from the matting crowds. All right. So we got Big Bend in Texas. But of course, if you look at Zion or you look at uh, Yellowstone and Yosemite, you know, the usual suspects, they're going to get crowded.
1: Yes. And even some of the not so usual suspects like Joshua Tree in California has uh, burst into the top 10 of visitation over the past year because it's close to 30 million people in Southern California. But again, there's other parks. I was in Zion last August. It was a zoo without a doubt. But then if you drive around to Capitol Reef, it's nice and uncrowded. And I think just as spectacular. And I went around to Arches and that was a zoo again. But if you go into Canyonlands, I remember a spectacular sunset in Canyonlands at the most famous viewpoint there. And I think there were maybe a dozen people. So there are places out there. You just have to do your research and think a little bit
0: outside of the box and go a little bit further off the grid than he normally might. You know, I, I go back to President Biden's rule about a mask mandate. Airlines, federal buildings also applies to national parks. In your experience, are people wearing their masks in the national parks?
1: Um, it's changed a lot. from last August, when I did the Utah trip, when I would say about 90 percent of the people in the parks were not wearing masks or social distancing to this most recent trip to uh, Southern Arizona, Southern New Mexico and West Texas, where about 90% of the people were, I think it changed a lot from last summer to the end of this winter. I think people, even in places where we didn't expect it, started to take it a lot more seriously because it just, the, it, it, COVID was dragging on and on and on. And I think that especially people in tourism felt that if they were ever gonna get back to normal, they had to do these things, the recommendations.
0: Now, I've always said that if you're really smart and you strategize, there are so many great state parks that are, in many cases, very close to national parks that can give you a great experience as well and not as crowded.
1: Oh, yes, for sure. Although some of them are. <laughs> yes. But it's impossible to get a campground for any time the rest of this year at a California Beach State Park campground. It's absolutely impossible. Um And um, luckily, I have um, reservations for Crystal Cove in Orange County in August um, that a friend was able to snag when the parks opened up again. But other than that, I just can't find anything along the California coast. Um, And, um, but yeah, you're right. There's a lot of, there's somewhere between eight and 10,000 state parks in the United States. Um, Some of them are really well known and still crowded like Niagara Falls. some of them are just out in the middle of nowhere that people don't know about. Um, it's a great resource um, because they're often just down the road from where you live. And it's a lot easier to go and do day trips to these places, even if you're not staying overnight. And you can find a lot of uh, state parks in states that are more off the beaten track. Um, and Like Montana, for instance, where I've camped at the state parks, where, where you're going to be able to find something very easily, yeah. I think.
0: I know that when you went to one of the national parks in Utah, you rented an RV and you survived. Barely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I
1: rented an RV in St. George and with my wife and my two kids. And we went to five national parks and five state parks over an eight-day span in, in August. Um, basically, to research my next two National Geographic books and also to do a feature story and photos for CNN travel on being an RV rookie. Um,
0: And I I definitely made rookie rookie mistakes. Well, you know why I'm laughing? I'm laughing because... I remember the first time I rented an RV and I thought I knew everything. I didn't understand the concept of the right turn. And if you don't learn that and take your driving test before you ever leave the lot, you're going to do some damage.
1: Well, I had the advantage of having kids with me that do what I tell them to do, at least at this age. And so they would hop out and make sure I didn't hit anything if I was turning right or left. <laughs> and, uh, so
0: so I had human spotters, you could say. <laughs> So you you were, are you tell are you telling me you returned the RV with not a single dent?
1: Yes, I didn't hit anything. I know it's miraculous. <laughs> that's what I was worried about beforehand. Was was like pulling in and out of a gas station. You know, it's how can I avoid hitting those little those little poles they have to make sure you don't hit the pumps and things. But I managed to not hit anything, which is. But that that's not to say that it was a perfectly fine experience. When we picked it up in St. George, the the guy who runs the company who turned it over basically said, even if you crank the air conditioning full up, that the air temperature inside is still going to be somewhere around 20 degrees below the ambient temperature outside. So when it's 110 in Moab, Utah, it means the inside of your RV is 90. Ooh, that's a hot box. That's a hot box, and it, and, and that's the thing that more than anything led to the family squabbles inside the RV. Um, <laughs> I, my wife tells it a lot better because she had to deal with the kids who... Basically, we're saying you know you're too close to me.
0: Don't touch me. You're sweaty um, inside the RV. Um, so is what you're saying to, is what you're saying. Don't rent an RV in the summer.
1: Don't rent an RV in the summer. I would say any place that gets over ninety degrees in the daytime because you're going to be uncomfortable through much of the day, and it might be even hard to sleep at night unless it, it cools off appreciably. The other thing I never ever came to grips with was the, the black water system, the septic system. And I, I talked to RV veterans afterwards. I should have talked to them before. And they gave me some great advice if I ever do this again. Um, and that's use
0: the onboard toilet as little as possible. <laughs> so. Yep. I, I get that. You know, it, it look, the thing is for me, and, I, and I'm, I'm taking your word about the temperature. The thing for me is I would rent the RV in the magic month of September. For me, that's the magic month for travel anyway. It's less crowded. Uh, You're not going to have arguments in the the RV because of the heat. And uh, you'll get a a chance to survive with or without the Blackwater system. Oh, sure.
1: And and I would actually push that to October myself because here in the southwest, you know, corner of the country where I live, you still get pretty hot Septembers. Um, But October has pretty much always been my favorite month to travel um, almost anywhere in the world, because it's either going to be fall or spring, no matter where you are, and uh, it's pretty much ideal weather. So yeah, September, October, definitely. Not in August. Not in Utah. <laughs> so sorry, sorry, Utah, but you know, wait a
0: wait a month. Exactly. And you know what? October in the Grand Canyon, not a bad idea. No, not at all. And I was there in October on the second
1: trip that I did for these new books. Um, And it was the most pleasant experience I've had at the Grand Canyon since I was a kid going there with my parents um, because it was uncrowded and the weather was just perfect it was pretty much 75 80 degrees every day at the south rim it cooled off at night to maybe 60 55 which is fine and um for the first time ever you know we rented bikes and did did that did the whole south rim bike trail thing which i'd never done before and um because you could get a bike i mean there were hundreds of bikes available because no one be no one was renting them and compared to the time i had been there before where it was hard to find a parking place anywhere on the South Rim because there were so many cars and so many people. So yeah, October at the Grand Canyon was just was just amazing, I gotta say.
0: My thanks to Joe, to Simon Wright, and to Washington Mayor Muriel Bowser. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, which seems to be happening by the hour, just log on to PeterGreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
3: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. <laughs> Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.
2: Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.